I think kindness is often misrepresented as something that's easy and I think it's one of the hardest things particularly if you think about kindness no exceptions dead easy to be kind to the people we like and the people we love and the people who are a bit like us much harder to be kind when somebody is hostile or different or irritating so I try to think about kindness no exceptions and collaboration I guess I go back to where I started right back to where I started which is that everything stands or falls on how we interact with other people. I've never done anything that hasn't been enhanced by talking to somebody or working with someone or simply asking them if they if they'd look at something I've done. And I think that, you know, I quite often think, oh, I don't want to trouble someone with this when, when I've got a, an idea or whatever. But it's always better for that. It's always, always better for that. Standing on the shoulders of giants, that's what I, I think of it. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018, in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. If you search out her Twitter bio, it reads, Deborah Bowman, Professor of Medical Ethics at St George's University. Navigating cancer, slow runner, often in theatres, always carrying a book, mostly suffering from enthusiasm, which in the mere two times I've met her, I would say sums her up well, but only if limited to a character count. Cultivating a strong work ethic from a young age and gaining an impressive 15 O-levels, Deborah's values and relationships-led approach to life has seen her excel in many arenas, including research, writing, broadcasting, on theatre boards and contributing to both charitable and private sector companies. Amongst many topics covered in this podcast, we speak about her bird phobia, taking up the cello later in life, Mind Media and Women of the Future Awards, the cancer diagnosis that floored her, and how in her life it's always been kindness, no exceptions. I grew up in Kent. I come from an Irish Catholic family. I had a very bumpy childhood, is probably the best way of of putting it, and I won't say much more about that. I went to a comprehensive school and had really nobody in my family had even taken exams, never mind Mm. gone, gone on and done anything really academic, I suppose. I think notwithstanding some of the bumpiness, I always had two things that were really valuable to me. One was there were teachers, actually, two teachers who really looked out for me and looking back mentored me. And the other is I had great friends, really good friends. And I think that taught me the capacity, you know, that everything stands or falls with relationships. Mm. So I had bumpy relationships, but I also had really strong affirming relationships and in both directions that teaches you how valuable but also how important relationships are and I think I've carried that with me 
were you a good student did you were you particularly diligent <laughs> hard working or did you muck um, about a little bit you know I'd love to say I was really naughty and effortlessly brilliant but it was <laughs> So I was a really, really good girl. Okay. I was really conscientious. Oh. I, the idea of getting into trouble just filled me with horror. So I wasn't, I, I'd love to say I was a kind of cool kid who was rebellious, but also brilliant. And neither of those things is true. I was a really good girl. And, and actually that was quite tough. Not so much a primary school, but when I went to my secondary school, which wasn't an academic school at all, it was really tough to be a kid who actually loved learning and really wanted to be there. I loved being at school. School was a very safe place for me in, in contrast to some other places in my life at the time. And so I really struggled with it. And of course, you can be a bit bullied and a bit harassed, mm. and all that sort of stuff. And I was actually, although I had my own geeky friends who kept me going. But no, I worked really hard. I've got a strong work ethic. And I think that's genuinely driven by loving learning I'm I'm incredibly curious about the world always have been so at what point of your education would you say that you started to kind of mold your ideas and interests more into what you're doing now or what your kind of first vocation was outside of secondary school or university well, do you know what I'm going to say? I don't think I ever did mould my ideas. I think what characterised me was I was interested in science and I was interested in arts and I was interested in the weather and I was <laughs> theatre and I was interested in books and people and everything. And I think I'm still like that. So although I have a job title, I have a slightly weird, really broad job title. I have lots of external things that I do I've been really lucky to do so I've chaired a theatre company I've been a broadcaster mm. I've worked with charities I've worked with the private sector I do teaching I do research I do writing I do senior leadership and I think that I have never moulded it because I did an absurd amount of O-levels and so I'm old enough to have done O-levels how many um, 15 wow that's and crazy wow crazy but it was a function of having gone to a school that didn't really know what to do with a kind of hard how work. did you physically have time to do 15 o levels because i'm really really interested so i did a whole bunch on my own and i went to okay. classes in other schools right so my school didn't offer exams but i've got o levels and really weird things so i've got o level is something called child care and development for example Sounds useful. Um, not at all. <laughs> um, and I've got children. Or maybe they'd say if I'd pay more attention, it would be, I don't know. But, you know, lots and lots of subjects. And I think I'm still like that. I get really interested. You can probably see behind me, I have thousands and thousands of books. This is a, a small number. And they're on all sorts of different things. So do you think there's ever a danger about I suppose it's a two-pronged question in the sense of doing something that you are passionate about and then it becomes work so it's less enjoyable and also becoming like a jack of all trades and not honing in your focus on one thing do you think that's a problem? There are two really interesting questions that I've reflected on a lot I think it depends on who you are a lot of this but for me I'm values-led and I'm relationship-led. So the subject could be the most interesting subject in the world, but if it's in an environment where I find the people difficult or 
my values are, are, are at odds with with their values then it won't work mm. and I've learned that it's taken me a long time to learn that I really wanted to be an actor if I'd been more courageous mm. I wouldn't have been and I wasn't you know I used to act and and I I probably wasn't talented enough anyway actually to be honest but if I if I'd been brave I would have got, would have loved to have go to drama school and, and do it and sometimes I think maybe that would have moved all the joy of it from me but I I don't know. It seems to me if the alternative is not to feel passionate about what you do, that's probably a bit rubbish. I can't imagine not having some space in my working life because work is such a big part of what we do at the moment and whether it should be is a different question. Where I'm not feeling highly motivated and highly engaged. I'm really driven. That matters to me. It doesn't matter. I've never really been someone who could just have a job. Mm. And I think your second question about you know jack of all trades is something that people have said about me absolutely especially in academia you know i've done academia all wrong you're supposed to become really really expert in an increasingly small area but you, you kind of are as well though aren't you to an extent well if you spoke to my peers they wouldn't say that at all okay. so instead of being so i do I mean, this is fine print stuff, but I do clinical ethics, which is ethics in practice, spend lots of time doing that. So I've, this morning I've been working with a clinical service talking about the cases and the real life problems that they're experiencing. Then I do academic ethics and usually people are, a, I don't know, they focus on reproductive ethics or they focus on public health ethics or they focus on, I don't know, learning disability. And I don't do that. I do anything I fancy. So that's within my field. I guess a bit like if you're a historian, you're supposed to do the 18th century or a bit of the 18th century. Yeah. I kind of said, bring on all the history, but in terms of ethics. And I also have law in my background. And although law, law has always excited me less, I still, you know, I still am very interested in administrative law, medical law and all, and all the rest of it. And then there's all the leadership stuff, which really fascinates me, not just in a practical way, but actually thinking about I'm interested in the psychodynamics of leadership. I'm interested in all of that. So I guess I haven't really, by academic standards, I haven't <laughs> specialised enough at all. Um, and you're supposed to be, you know, a researcher or predominantly or a teacher predominantly. And you're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to really get your niche. And nobody would ever say to be able to say, I don't think about me. Oh, yes, yeah, she's really well known for mental health ethics or she's really well known for palliative ethics I think you get a lot of people and a lot of specialties saying oh, yeah we've worked with Deborah and so that is so that jack of all trades thing I think is a potential criticism it's no bad uh, thing though either it doesn't sound like it it's not for me mm. and I hope it's not for people who work I work with because I guess what it does allow me to do I realize that I'm probably not someone who's going to have a big original thought that changes practice in whatever discipline but I am somebody who can see connections between all sorts of bits of the world and nothing I ever do feels wasted or unconnected to other things and I love that you know I see I notice things I know I think I'm quite observant I notice similarities I notice language I learned so much from working on radio, so much about the lenses we bring to how we see the world, about what you're doing now, the transformative effect of an open, well-timed question, of attentive listening, of conveying authentic and sincere enthusiasm for something 
to people who, who have never thought about it before, of the unexpected ways in which radio and, and other media allow you to reach people you'd never reach in a university. So yes, that, as I say, everything connects for me because I think we're all connected. It sounds really trite, but I, th I believe in that. So I work in that very connected, broad way. Is there a standout moment or a person maybe across your career that you would say has helped you or set you off on this particular trajectory or just been amazingly supportive or opened doors for you, giving you a step up when you needed it or just a listening ear? Yeah, there are a couple of people. So I, I mentioned teachers and I had one teacher in particular called Mrs. Lunn, who sadly died a couple of years ago. And I stayed in touch with her all through uh, until she died and she she was so much to me she was you know she was quite maternal but she also saw I, and I think this is a common thing for many people she saw in me both what I was and who I was so being seen but she also saw who I could be and what I might be and she held a mirror up and you know really supported me I knew nothing about applying to university. There was no one I could ask. And she suggested I went to Oxford. I mean, that was just extraordinary, really. And she, she supported me through a process that was utterly alien and very disorienting. And she was extraordinary. She was absolutely extraordinary. And she always was. And, you know, there were different points. So when I got my PhD, when I became a professor, when I, I don't know, took on other roles outside, side of the university I'd always tell her and she never seemed surprised but she always seemed proud and that's a such a winning combination to that's have lovely. so yeah Mrs Lum was was and, and is really important I, I um sounds a bit strange but I kind of carry her in in my mind and 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 heart actually as well the other person is also someone who's no longer with us she was quite well known her name is Lisa Jardine and she she was a kind of public intellectual, if you like. She was a professor of literature and history, and she, she was allocated to me as a mentor when I got my first academic job at Queen Mary in Westfield, as it then was. And she was extraordinary. She really helped me navigate the university system with a very light touch. She had a wicked sense of humour. She kind of released something in me. She stopped the good girl and the perfectionist in me from becoming inhibiting. You know, she released that in me, I think. She used to have, a bit like Pinky actually, these lunches. <laughs> and she always conducted herself with clarity and confidence, but humility. And I learned as much from watching her as I did from talking to her and just being around her. It felt like being in, in the um, orbit of something very special. Across all of the incredible accolades that you have, and they are quite incredible, and it'll take me a very long time to list them all out. Is there any one thing in particular that stands out for you or that you're particularly proud of? Um, yeah, there is actually. So I think... I'm not allowed to, am I? But they, they sort of have a theme. So the first one is that a long-running series that I was involved with called Inside the Ethics Committee won a, a Mind Media Award for an episode that it did on a patient with needle phobia who was very seriously ill and was refusing treatment because of the phobia that, that he had. I mean, the award was 
really not for me. The, the award was for the producer, Beth, who is a phenomenal woman. But I, I am so proud of that award because that to me is, 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 I guess, what I was saying before about radio and what it can do and the people it reaches. And it was recognition not in a kind of academic credentials kind of a way, bells and whistles and I'm so clever kind of a way, but recognition from an organisation that exists to represent the interests of people who are in mental distress, however that manifests itself. But we had made a programme that was compassionate and thoughtful and informative, and that was pretty special. And I am going to sneak it in there. I, I was <laughs> really thrilled to get the Mentor Award from the Women of the Future Network because, I don't know, it felt a bit like I was able to continue what Mrs Lunn and Lisa had done for me. I still call her Mrs Lunn. That ability to just work with people. And it was validating something that is very important to me. And so that meant a lot to me. Was that the first time that you'd heard about the Women of the Future programme? Or had uh, it come on your radar before then? It hadn't actually. So my boss, Jenny Hyam, who uh, is the principal at St George's. She's been on this podcast. Yeah, I did that. Jenny occasionally would have these sort of mysterious WOF events in her diary. (laughs) She'd be like, where's where's she going? (laughs) Is that like the WHO? I don't know. Um, (laughs) But no, and... And so I didn't know it at all. And then Pinky came to St. George's and suddenly, you know, it's a bit like, I don't know, when you decide you might be interested in buying a speaker or something, you've never paid any attention looking at speakers and suddenly everywhere, everything You're is an expert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like that. And yeah, what a, what a thing, what a phenomenal thing that Pinky has created for us all. I have some quick fire questions for you. What would you describe as your greatest success? Quick fire questions on the <laughs> tumbleweed. <laughs> getting through stuff, getting through bumpy. And your greatest failure? There was an occasion when I didn't speak up when I should have done, and I learned from that. The mantra of the woman of the future is kindness and collaboration. What does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life? So kindness is, you'd expect this, but I'm, I'm very interested in what's called virtue ethics. So kindness is a virtue. Um, and it's, you know, it's what Aristotle said. So it's kind of the core of everything I do. I think kindness is often misrepresented as something that's easy. And I think it's one of the hardest things, particularly if you think about kindness, no exceptions. Dead easy to be kind to the people we like and the people we love and the people who are a bit like us. Much harder to be kind when somebody is hostile or different or irritating so I try to think about kindness no exceptions and collaboration I guess I go back to where I started right back to where I started which is that everything stands or falls on how we interact with other people I've never done anything that hasn't been enhanced by talking to somebody or working with someone or simply asking them if they if they look at something I've done and I think that you know, I quite often think, oh, I don't want to trouble someone with this when, when I've got a, an idea or whatever. But it's always better for that. It's always, always better for that. Standing on the shoulders of giants. That's what I, I think of it. Is there anything that scares you? Oh, gosh, yes. Loads. Absolutely loads. <laughs> um, so a really small thing, but a, but a big thing in, in lots of ways is I have a terrible phobia about birds. 
Oh, so that, what, the, yeah, flap, really, the flapping or? Just the whole thing, the, okay, the, the okay. flapping, the, the beaks, the eyes. All the of them across the board, little ones, That's big ones. Ducks, okay. whole lot. People always try and come up with a bird that I must be okay with. Right. But uh, no, there isn't. So in London, that's really difficult. That is so quite I difficult. Yeah. Weave around uh, because I have to cross the road if there are, if there are birds, usually pigeons or seagulls in front of me. So really frightened of that. Um, I'm frightened of frightened is the wrong word, but I'm I'm really frightened of not saying that which needs to be said. I'm frightened of not being brave. That sounds really strange. Mm. I have the paradox of that, but you know, it can be very difficult to speak up or to speak out, mm. especially at the moment in some ways. And I'm frightened of losing the, the courage to do that. And so sometimes you have to drive yourself quite, quite hard. Um, I think when I was diagnosed with cancer, was I frightened of dying? I don't think I am frightened of dying. I think I'm frightened of leaving people. I think that frightens me because I, I worry about them hugely, you know, my, my kids and my friends and my husband and all, all of that. I, I, I worry about that. Did it come as a big shock to you being diagnosed with cancer? Um, yes, I think it did. I think, um, so I presented in a very dramatic way. I was absolutely fine. Mm. And then, suddenly I really wasn't and I think I so wasn't that when they when they actually said this is cancer I wasn't surprised then because I'd I'd realized but I really did go from you go through a door you know one minute I was normal um well just chugging along and the next minute everything everything changed and I you know, I thought a lot about serious illness and death and dying and work with people all, all through my career, really. And there's nothing you can do to rehearse for that. However, however many books you read, however many people you meet, you can't. Um, you know, I was, I was floored by how disruptive and distressed it was. I saw an article you wrote about how it changed your beliefs on medicine, which must be quite a challenge in your vocation. It, it, it is actually. Um, so what, what's changed, I guess, is I was, I was always very much about patient autonomy. And I, in some ways I still am. Of course I am. That, you know, we all, we all know our bodies and ourselves and we make choices. What I think I had missed from my perspective, and I can only speak for myself, is quite quite how vulnerable illness makes you and quite how inconsistent I was um, and still am in some ways. So I both really, really, really wanted everything done and really, really, really didn't, mm. you know, all at the same time. And I think I would have simply said before, well, autonomy is about you choose whether or not you have treatment, but it's so much more complex than that. And I think... I would have thought another example is I would have thought I wanted to know absolutely everything about my illness. You know, I go, go back to being that curious person who needs to know everything. But that didn't reckon on the emotional burden of that and what it's like to, to read, you know, up there, and you can't see it, but up there in my study, I've got several files now of letters. And each one of those is, breaks your heart a little bit. And so the ethical thing is to share the information. 
but the impact of that is enormous. How, how did you or how have you and your family found the pandemic and do you hope that as a nation we'll take some learnings forward from it? I would love there to be learnings. I mean, how have I found it? I, I found it, like everybody, I guess, disorienting. I think, I think chemotherapy and immunotherapy really prepares you quite well for lockdown and keeping your distance from people and stuff, because I've, I've kind of always had to do that. And I've learned that's really quite hard because um, I'm very tactile, very demonstrative. I'm a hugger and all of that sort of stuff. I think we've never spent quite so much time together. Um, <laughs> hey, yeah, how's, that, how's that been? <laughs> that's been revealing mm-hmm. uh, in many, many ways. Um, very tactful. Very... <laughs> <laughs> I think I feel it's funny. I feel more connected in a time of disconnection. And I... I hope I've always been thoughtful about where people are, but I try to be more thoughtful about it. I, I'm finding now quite strange, actually, the the coming out of lockdown is is in a way a different type of disorienting from the going in and being in. I'm interested in what it will be like when the world returns, but I maybe am not returned to the world. So I think it's it is disorienting. I think in terms of how have I got used to it I'm not sure I have I think I've got used to strategies to help me through it coping Uh, mechanisms yeah uh, yeah I yearn to hug people again Mm. I I really do I I really crave that and my daughter's in Glasgow she's a theatre director and um, you know she's had a it's been a real blow for her and and her work yeah I bet Um, so so being a mum to her although she's 25 is is quite hard at a distance when her world has has really turned on its axis so when I was this is just a bit of a random question but I was looking through notes on you and do you play the cello or you were learning to play the cello because I did too I think it's the most random instrument it was kind of forced on me when I was about 12 and the amount of time I had to lug it around it's like it's huge I wasn't massive and I just wanted do you still play I don't know whether that's I do I do but I'm still terrible I make yeah I took it up so I didn't I didn't play as a child at all and I wanted to learn I've always wanted to learn the cello I think I don't know there's there's lots about the cello when it's beautiful mm. that's very appealing and of course I hadn't bargained on the fact that I have no talent whatsoever <laughs> and, um, would make terrible noises and I and I really do make terrible noises but there's something about there is something about the cello two things about it that I think sum up something that matters to me the first is that it's really important to do things that you're not good at I think that's really important, especially for people who maybe a bit like me are quite perfectionist, quite sort of high achieving type. Mm. There's something about saying, do you know what? I'm rubbish at this, but I'm going to do it. Give it a go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want to. And, and there's something about being able to be vulnerable enough to put yourself in a position of just my poor teacher. I mean, she's such a long <laughs> But she, you know, she's so kind, kindness again. To, to this middle-aged woman sort of soaring away at the cello with no progress being made. But I think I take what it is to be a bit vulnerable into situations where I might be teaching someone who doesn't mm. know something or, or whatever. I think the other thing it's taught me a lot about, and I think I had quite a lot of this, but I'm interested in, is just 
putting one foot in front of the other or one finger in front of the other mm. on your spouse, even when things aren't going so well and persisting just being with things even when they're uncomfortable what's left on your to-do list oh gosh loads, loads, <laughs> loads. um so in my in my drawers i have several plays and novels that I've never done anything with um but you've written yeah um so I did uh, the Faber creative writing program and then I was very lucky I was part of a Curtis Brown sort of development program quite a long time ago now over a decade ago so I'd love to have time and space to really develop those I am very keen really to uh, I, I'm, you probably know about this but I'm always 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 taking commissioning ideas to various people who decide that they don't actually need this brilliant idea that I've had but there are a whole <laughs> bunch of uh, program ideas that I've got and I'd love to see some of those happen we'll see uh, some of them haven't gone to commissioners yet so I won't prejudge those um, <laughs> I'm just about to begin my term as a trustee of Princess Alice Hospice I'm really keen to end of life care and palliative care has always been an interest of mine. I'm really keen to, to develop that. I want to sit in a theatre again, which was a very big part of my life. So yeah, those those are the things off the top of my head, but but there's lots. I'm terrible. <laughs> I'm always thinking jobs and opportunities and thinking, oh, I could do that. I'd love to do that. Mm. So yeah. You're so inspiring and effervescent and it's always, I mean, I've only met you, this is probably the second time that I met you, but it's just, it's lovely speaking to you. So thank you so much for taking the time and I yeah. can't help but be inspired by everything that you say and all your work and what you do. So thank you very much. Thank you, Kim. It's just been wonderful. And I hope we get to talk again without it being recorded. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Thanks a lot, Deborah. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.